chapter 7. Let's just take a moment and uh, prepare to get into the Word. Uh, you know, my hope is all eyes on Jesus, of course, which uh, means not eyes on me, okay? And I just stand before you today as a vessel. Uh, I don't need to be up here, uh, but my desire is that since I am called to this position, that we would hear from the Lord today and always, okay? So as we do that, there are many things that could distract us from the teaching time. And some of them are very valid, valid and important things, things that you care deeply about. And, and you need to know God cares deeply about those things as well. Situations like what's happening in Oklahoma and the recovery there, all the effort that's being made. Um, things like uh, just the ordinary problems of life day to day and cares that you have in this day and age when there's many things to be anxious about. So let's just take some time right now. And uh, I just want you to cast your cares upon the Lord. He says that, cast your cares on me because I care for you. So take, take a moment and cast your cares upon the Lord. Father, we do pray for those who are recovering in Oklahoma. Bless them. Thanks for the teams that are going. Thanks for the teams that are going in your name. Lord, thanks for Paige and the witness that she is all over the world in the climbing community and beyond. Bless her in her efforts. Thank you for her. Thanks for Amber and her love for expecting parents, Lord, and her desire to see these babies raised up for your glory. Now, Lord, thank you for hearing the prayers of your people. Speak, Lord. Speak to us today. We are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. So, all eyes on Jesus, because he's our hope, he's our strong, our song, he's our salvation. Uh, if we're going to be adequately prepared for the coming kingdom, if we're going to be prepared and ever become holy, that it's about Jesus being glorified in our lives. Today, in our Bible text, it takes on a very specific uh, meaning, and I've defined it this way. Hear this now. Since we cannot make sense of this paradoxical world, this world that is filled with contradictions, those who fear God must avoid two extremes. The first extreme we must avoid is becoming super spiritual. And the second extreme we must be, avoid is becoming very wicked. So here's our paradox this morning in verse 15, Ecclesiastes 7. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. And then here's his help on this matter. He says, do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. <laughs> so now he's going to give some supporting parables or, or proverbs, excuse me, and the problem of sin. So watch this, verse 19. 
Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Did you hear that? Yeah. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. Now he's going to test this paradox with, with wisdom. In verse 23, all this I tested by wisdom and asked, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate and search out wisdom and the scheme of things and to understand the stupidity and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered, adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. I think those were male voices that led the charge there <laughs> in the laughter. Yeah. <laughs> Stop hitting each other. All right. This only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. All right. Here we go. Here's our paradox. Why do the righteous people seem to die young? while the wicked people sometimes seem to go on and live long lives. Didn't God give us promises? Here's one right here in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 33. Walk in obedience to all the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. And you know, we can study our Bibles and we can find all sorts of examples of how this verse actually played out to be true, but... We also find those times that just the opposite can be said. Take, for example, Abel. Abel, who gave the acceptable offering to God, compared to his brother Cain, who gave the unacceptable offering to God. And then Cain, out of jealous rage, kills his brother Abel. So here we have the righteous Abel dead, while the unrighteous Cain goes on to get married, goes on to have children, and as far as we can tell, goes on to live to a ripe old age. It's a paradox. Would you agree? Yeah. Consider Naboth. He refused to, to sell his land, his God-given land, to King Ahab, and as a result, he was killed for that very reason. Take, for example, the first martyr, Stephen, boldly stands for Jesus Christ and ends up being stoned to death. Now, I hope that as I'm sharing these things, you're starting to think about people in your life, people whom you know who, who face similar contradictions. As I was studying, I was thinking about Valerie's favorite cousin, Michael Mueller, outstanding young man of God. But on the day we received his wedding invitation in the mail, we got a phone call that Michael had been killed when his F-18 crashed into the Sierra Nevadas during a training routine. 
We're also told that three people on hearing about his death gave their lives to Jesus Christ because his witness was incredible. A paradox? Yeah. So the psalmist, he despairs and he says this. This is Psalm 73, verse 12. This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. And, and to this, this paradoxical world, the teacher gives us a, a, a solution. And he does this in the fashion of an ABC, ABC parallelism combined with synonymous parallels. So I want you to see this. This is verse 16 in our text, chapter 7. A, do not be overrighteous. B, neither be overwise. C, why destroy yourself? A, do not be overwicked. B, do not be a fool. C, why die before your time? Okay, and the synonymous parallels you see there, overrighteous and overwise, those mean the same thing, talking about the same thing. So that statement is being too wise, and then the next one is overwicked and being a fool. Those are the same thing. And then he says, it is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. So let's break this apart now. How in the world can anyone be overrighteous? <laughs> I mean, didn't Jesus tell us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness? Is the teacher contradicting Jesus at this point? No. What he's doing is he's pointing us back to our paradox, and he's showing us the mistakes people make in their efforts to try to adjust to the paradoxes that life throws them away, their way. Let me give you the first one, the first extreme as far as how people respond wrongly to difficult situations. It goes like this. Since God has promised long life to the righteous, then that must mean that people who die young are somehow unrighteous, and therefore I must try all the harder to be super righteous in order to prolong my life. Huh. Yeah, exactly. And so it's to this kind of teaching that the teacher says trying to be super spiritual, super righteous, merely to prolong your life will end up destroying you. <laughs> That's his conclusion. Listen, friend, here's the application. Your desire, my desire, must be to recognize that that desire, the desire to change and the desire to, to, to reflect God's glory is a gift from God, but it's a gift from God that is beyond our capacity left to ourselves and therefore we recognize it's God's work and so the Christian experience becomes this life of putting ourselves in God's hands it's a picture of surrender that's the first one set verse 17 now we're where he says not to be over wicked okay so you look at that and you have to ask is he suggesting that um since righteousness doesn't necessarily prolong our lives, that we ought to just throw in the towel and, uh, you know, just kind of go with it, baby. I mean, party hardy, have a good time kind of thing. Just go crazy. Well, obviously, he says that's not a good solution either. But why the words over wicked here or, or too wicked? Is he suggesting that we allow for a little bit of evil in our lives? No, he's not doing that either. What he's doing here, he's simply being honest about the reality that we have a sin 
problem. And he's going to spell that out. We saw it as we read through the scripture, but we'll see it again here in just a moment. But here's the application. Our perfection is in God's hands. We should desire that. We should desire to be everything that God desires us to be. In fact, let me put it in these words. While sin in each of our lives may be inevitable, those who embrace evil as a way of life will be destroyed by it. See, don't conclude that, that if your efforts seem to be in vain, why even try? In fact, here's the best statement of all on this one. Let's not be deliberately wicked. Yeah. Verse 18. It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. And I just have to say right here, this is not a message on moderation. You know, everything is good in moderation. No. That's not, that's not what this is about. It's a summary of the two things we just looked at. Don't try to be super righteous because that will lead to pride. And don't give in because it seems to be futile at, at, at times. And so here's an application here. Fear God. That's what he says because people who fear God are not going to try to prolong their lives by their own righteousness. Nor are they going to throw in the towel and say, why even bother but instead they're going to seek to understand what it means to live as God's instrument in God's hands so verse 16 starts off with this challenge not to be overly righteous and now verse 9 takes us through a series of proverbs that highlight wisdom and our struggle uh, to obtain it so let's go on verse 19 wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than 10 rulers in a city, 10 being a number of strength in, in, in leadership. It's an exaggeration here that's taking place. We call it a, a hyperbole. And we're going to really work on this when we get to chapter 9. But for now, I just want you to see a few verses from chapter 9, okay? Chapter 9, uh, verse 16 says, Wisdom is better than strength. Somehow, he concludes, Wisdom is better than strength. And then uh, verses 16, the first part, and 17. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. So he's showing us that wisdom is the better road. Now let's keep on in our text, verse 20. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. And so what this tells us is that even the most righteous and even the wisest among us share the same problem in that we all have the reality of sin in our lives. Now, you should recognize those words because uh, Paul gives them to us again in Romans chapter 3. In fact, Ro Paul's writing there in Romans is often credited to the writings that we have here in the book of Ecclesiastes. And frankly, can I be so honest with you as to say that this is a good answer to our paradox? This verse right here, I mean, if we would dare shake our fists at God and say, I've tried so hard, why have you made my life so difficult? <laughs> the reality is that there is no one who is righteous. How can we declare personal benefit when the scripture says there is no one righteous all have sinned. But Paul concludes it this way. This is Romans 3, uh, verse 23 and 24, where he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
But here's the good news. That's the bad news. The good news is, and are justified, which means made right freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Anybody glad for that? Yeah. Better believe it. Well, I want you to hold on to that because really this is the answer that we all need to see by the time that we're done today. So we'll come back to it. And uh, right now, we just want to keep moving on. But now we're going to see it in the way we treat one another. Keep in mind, Solomon had hundreds of women in his life, okay? When he gives us these next words, keep that in mind, all right? Verse 21, yeah, <laughs> a little disillusion there. Verse 21, do not pay attention to every word people say. Why? Well, or you may hear your servant cursing you. Someone said that the eavesdropper will never hear anything good about himself. <laughs> you may hear your servant cursing you if you listen too closely. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. So think about that time that someone cursed you unfairly. Think about that time that you're driving on I-25 and someone cuts you off, almost causing you to get into an accident. Think about that time when you said words to someone wh whom you love dearly, words like stupid or, or idiot or these kind of things. They are all evidence that sin is a universal problem. So don't listen too carefully to what other people are saying because you just might get a window into what you're truly like. Hmm. All have sinned. Even the most righteous Missed the mark. And you know, I used to think uh, in my younger days that when people came to me to talk to me about someone else, that I was significant in their lives because they would confide in me. They trusted me. But then I got a little bit wiser and I realized, hold on a minute. If this person would dare talk to me about someone else, then what might that same person possibly saying about me to someone else? You see what's going on here? Look in the mirror, friends, with me, will you? And see how we have this habit of justifying our positions, of somehow feeling significant by the way we make others insignificant. In fact, Charles Spurgeon used to tell all of his ministerial students that in ministry, you need to have one blind eye and one deaf ear. Yeah. In fact, he would go on with this. He would say, you cannot stop people's tongues, and therefore the best thing to do is stop your ears and never mind what is spoken. He keeps going. He says, there is a world of idle chit-chat abroad, and he who takes note of it will have enough to do. <laughs> In other words, if you're going to listen to things that people are saying, that you can consume all your time just listening to chit-chat. Yeah. So right there is a call just to repentance of the things we say, the way we undermine each other, the way we try to elevate ourselves by pushing others down. Yeah, let's be about pushing others up. And when we're pushing others up, guess what posture we take? We're putting ourselves below them. And it's in pushing them up that they can carry us wherever God wants us to go. That's what glorifies God. Verse 23. All this I tested by wisdom. And I said, I am determined to be wise. But this was beyond me. 
It's out of my reach. Wisdom is far more than I can grab a hold of. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So here he is. He's looking at all, the, all this paradoxical stuff, this question of why righteous people seem to suffer and unrighteous seem to keep going and going and going. And he's given us some great wisdom in all of this. He says, it's true. Sometimes bad things seem to happen to good people and good things seem to happen to some bad people. But then he says, don't allow that to cause you to go to extremes, like trying to be super righteous or trying to throw in the towel and sinning deliberately. Then three, the fear of God is what will help you to avoid all extremes because in this puzzling world, we need to understand what it means to be fully in God's hands so that he alone will be glorified in the end. And number four, if we're going to protest about how good we are and question why we suffer, then we better face the reality that none of us is that good. But he wants to know more. And in that, he says, it's just beyond me. <laughs> in fact, would you read with me Romans eleven thirty three and 34. Let's read this together. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsel? <laughs> what advice do you have for God, really? Don't you love it? Huh? Yeah, verse 25. So I turned my mind to understand, one. Turned my mind to understand, two, to investigate, and three, to search out wisdom and the schemes. He's going to use scheme here three times. What's with all the conspiracy in the world? The conspiracy against me. <laughs> he says, of the things. And to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. So now he's going to look at wisdom and folly side by side. And wisdom wins. We've seen that all along. Verse 26. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her. But the sinner, she will ensnare. Wow. Can we just stop here and acknowledge that King Solomon, the guy who may have written this book, got an F on this category? <laughs> right? There's no such thing as a bad teacher, right? Because a bad teacher will teach you what not to do. And here we have Solomon, the bad teacher, teaching us what not to do. Remember he warned us earlier not to be overly wicked and now we see the trap of lust and of pornography because that's what's going on here. It's enticing, but it never satisfies. And then he goes on, he says, look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered, adding one thing to another to discover the schemes of things. While I was still searching but not founding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Well, guess how many women were in Solomon's life? One thousand. Yes. Look at 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3. It's written in, the, in history forever. It says 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines, but here's the problem. All of these wives led him astray. <laughs> I 
I wish we were sitting down talking because I'd like to hear just what's on your mind there. That, that's causing you to chuckle at that one. It's a great. <laughs> Mia's saying it's all over there. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, the reason that these women led him astray is because he married them for all the wrong reasons. He was rich. He was powerful. He could have anything that he wanted. He could have anything that he could ever imagine. It was all at his disposal. He could have it. And consequently, their faith didn't matter. He wasn't to intermarry with women of other faiths. He married women who worshipped idols and false gods, and he's bringing them into his household. And the only thing that they had in common was the idea that they were the prettiest from all the countries of the world. It was about a physical attraction. There was nothing more than that, and consequently, Solomon could find nothing of real value. And you put a thousand women in one room, and guess what? They just might talk about you. Kind of pulls this whole thing together, doesn't it? Yeah, and they've all got their little things. So to the male chauvinist who reads that and says, yes, <laughs> you're missing the point because he's already told us there's no one who's righteous. And when you read that he sees one man in a thousand, he might as well be saying one in a million because the truth is it doesn't exist. Okay, so someone then says, well, why does he say about men there's one in a thousand, but women, he says he could not find one. Well, we have a tendency to justify ourselves so he could think of himself as the righteous one in the crowd. He could be thinking about his father, David. Out of love for his father. He never heard, heard David chit-chatting about other people like he heard these 1,000 women chit-chatting about him. Or some other significant male possibly in his life. But can we all agree he was disillusioned by these 1,000 women, women who were in his life? And can we all agree, Solomon, that's your fault? Solomon, that's your problem? Huh? That you don't know what it means to have a relationship with one woman who you dearly love for the rest of your life? Because, ladies and gentlemen, it takes a real man to love one woman for an entire lifetime. And he never experienced it. Verse 29, the conclusion. This only have I found. God created mankind. Guess who that includes? Men and women. He created them upright. But they have all gone in search of many schemes. Can I tell you God created you to bless you? Can I tell you that God's bless, best blessings come as a result of being in relationship with him? Can I tell you that when God placed the man and woman in the garden, he put at their disposal the tree of life and all of the trees in the garden, but he kept one away from them, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but they gave up life, they gave up all the other trees, they gave up a relationship with God in search of knowledge of good and evil? 
And so out of a need to try to adjust, they may become super spiritual at times to try to figure it all out. Or at other times, they may throw caution into the wind and say, what's the point? I might as well live a life of compromise. And then in an effort to justify themselves, they begin to think, surely I'm good enough to deserve God's blessing. And in so doing, guess what they've done? They've undermined everything Jesus Christ ever did on the cross. Jesus, thank you anyway. I don't need it. Nice gesture, but I think I'm good enough and the Father will like me just the way that I am. And then when things don't grow right, we begin pointing the fingers and blaming God and we have to say, why do they have to have it so much better than me when you know how hard I try? Oh my goodness. Why do wicked people seem to prosper when righteous people sometimes seem to suffer. And the scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But there's good news and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Jesus said this, listen to this carefully. Go and learn what this means. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Can we put there, not your super righteous efforts? For I have not come to call the super righteous, but to call sinners. Jesus, what a friend to sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me too. The end. Jesus, I'm reminded of your promise. You said, these things I have written to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And Lord, today I recognize how desperately I need what you accomplished on the cross because there's no way on earth I could stand before you and say, I'm good enough that I deserve your blessing. But what I really need, Lord, is the greatest blessing of all. I need Jesus' sacrificial death upon the cross. I recognize that he was what I could never be. And in so being, he did what was meant for me.
He suffered and died. The righteous for the unrighteous in order that I might live. And I stand in awe and I give you praise and say, worthy are you, Lord Jesus, of all honor, glory, and praise forever and ever. Amen.